You're listening to The Saints in St. Louis. Hear how the Museum at the Gateway Arch tells the story of Latter-day Saints history and immigration in St. Louis. Here's Mary Richards on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome to this special hour on General Conference Weekend to talk about The Saints in St. Louis a history of the haven given to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, both in the 19th century and today. I'm your host, Mary Richards. In this hour, we'll go through the early days of the church in Missouri. There was thousands that came to St. Louis for safety. St. Louis welcomed them. To the crucial role St. Louis played for pioneers heading west. Through the years, St. Louis has been very friendly to the church. To the unprecedented community success that is the St. Louis Temple. Well, I doubt that the church enjoys any location that has a better relationship with the community than than the Saints in St. Louis. And we'll tour the beautiful new museum at the Gateway Arch, showcasing the strong partnership between the church and St. Louis today. When you mention Missouri and the church, you may think of the 1830s in Jackson County, or Hans Mill, far west, Adam on Diamond, mobs, violence, extermination order. This was all in the western part of the state. In the east, however, in St. Louis, it was a completely different story. And yet, the St. Louis story is not widely known. Fred Woods is a church history professor at Brigham Young University and co-author of When the Saints Came Marching In. Yeah, and what's really amazing is that for those that have been with the extermination order in 1838, with the Mormons that had been expelled from uh, that region, when they come to St. Louis, we find that even a handful of St. Louis citizens held meetings to help these these exiles. And so... Uh, And then in addition to that, we have later on in the 40s, early 40s, we have all these thousands of British Latter-day Saint immigrants coming from Liverpool, crossing the Atlantic, 54-day voyage, coming in New Orleans, another dozen days up to uh, St. Louis. But um, they're going – this is going to be, again, a stopping zone for some of them. And then – when the Latter-day Saints are cast out of Nauvoo and in 46, early 46, then this will again, about 1,500 will gather. And this is when we really see branches of the church that are developing in St. Louis. That's quite a fair number. And then the others have gone on to Salt Lake and will come into the uh, Salt Lake Valley in 47. And then through the 50s, I don't think people are aware about the stake in St. Louis, that there were enough saints to have a full stake. Yeah, we had three to 4,000 Latter-day Saints uh, by 1854, and the St. Louis stake becomes the 16th stake in the church. Milo Andrus, a name well-known among Latter-day Saints, is sustained as the first stake president. And it's interesting, too, because... Uh, you know, we're talking about 5% by the mid-19th century. We have about 5% that are Latter-day Saints and well-respected in the area as being hard workers. And so it's, uh, it's a great thing. We have some wonderful uh, wonderful leadership at that time. One person is Nathaniel Felt. Nathaniel had been a tailor in Salem, Massachusetts, and then had immigrated into Nauvoo. 
And uh, he was one of the few people that really had quite a bit of money. He had 22 employees. And uh, long story short, he bought some beautiful furniture that later was used to dec- decorate the Nauvoo Temple. So this is, a, this is a great story. It was a different experience on the eastern side, wasn't it? When they think of that region of St. Louis, they're thinking of a place of tolerance, an oasis, a haven. Nowhere is that peaceful relationship so clear as in the brand new and expanded Gateway Arch Museum. Here is where I met Wood's co-author, Tom Farmer, a local historian for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in St. Louis. And at his side, Bob Moore, historian at the Gateway Arch National Park. At the fall of Nauvoo, there were people that went to winter quarters or they camped in Iowa, 1846, but there was thousands that came to St. Louis for safety. That's the first thing. St. Louis welcomed them. Then St. Louis became the trailhead in 1847, bringing them designated. It switched to different spots, but St. Louis was a major immigration hub. Uh, in 1849, there was three to 4,000 members of the church that lived in St. Louis from England, and they, many of the buildings in this area have the results of their efforts that they did, building certain things, doing things. They were a skilled, trained to have. group that were hireable. They could speak the language. And, uh, again, the people knew, yeah, they might be a little different, but they didn't live in one section of town. And the other thing was they knew they weren't permanent. They were going to be moving on. They were an asset to the community. And the community welcomed them. You know, we've found newspaper reports from that time period where they actually have feature articles and they say, these are our wonderful neighbors. I think right, that was right. a quote, wasn't it? Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah, and, and how yeah. they were just happy for these people. You know, we, we have this group here, and they're kind of this hidden, and they weren't. Kind of a treasure because right. they were skilled laborers uh, or even people who were professional people who were coming in that were assets to the community while they were here, and many of them were just trying to earn enough money so that they could continue their trip further west. And a lot of them, you know, were coming up from Europe. They would come through New Orleans and up the Mississippi River, and they would get this far, and they did not have enough funds to continue. Yeah, they came through New Orleans, and, and again, a lot of them, they had to stay months, years, yeah. working here. And that the church actually had agents here that would buy supplies to ship to Utah, and uh, St. Louis was like the Walmart for the church. Anything you needed, you could get out of St. Louis. Coming up next, more from the welcoming Gateway Arch and the crucial role St. Louis played in the Saints' journey west. Back to The Saints in St. Louis with Mary Richards on KSL News Radio. This is The Saints in St. Louis. I'm Mary Richards. When you walk into the new Gateway Arch Museum, immediately you feel how light and open, big and welcoming it is. On the floor is a huge map showing the many westward trails out of St. Louis. We do have the Mormon Trail is on this map, uh, which you can see is in that, it's in that red color. Huge displays show videos reenacting the treks west, including scenes filmed at Martin's Cove, Wyoming. And I said, so here I am right here, the guy in the brown coat. So the church supplied all those costumes and everything. 
Historians Bob Moore and Tom Farmer worked for years on this museum together. Moore works for the Gateway Arch. Farmer is a local Latter-day Saint historian. Moore says they could not have this museum expansion without the help of the church. It wasn't just the church history department, the archivists, able to get things stirred up and and, uh, moving ahead on both ends to make things happen, but then the whole filming aspect of things and you know the epic movie <laughs> movies that we made uh, to go on huge screens which are one of the first things people see as they come into the visitor center complex and without the aid of the church that none of that would have been possible it saved so much money and it provided so many uh, of the elements that we needed to make those films happen so costuming makeup um, the props, the actual wagons and the animals, the the draft animals and everything you can think of uh, to kind of make this time period of history come to life and for people to walk into this center and see it on the movie screen. Moore says the whole goal of the new museum was to intertwine the stories of every group. Because it's always been my thought that the church's story is not told in context with the westward movement. It's always told separately, it seems to me. And and maybe not in all books, but certainly in museum exhibits and things of that nature. So you would go to a Mormon visitor center, and they'd be telling you all about this great history. Then you go to a trail visitor center, and all they're talking about is the Oregon Trail or the California Trail. And I thought, well, this is this all should be together. This all happened at the same time. And then, to me, it also demonstrated that there were these three major motivating factors for people to travel, and we try to emphasize that in the museum. So there's the idea of getting rich quick, there's the idea of owning your own land and being able to farm it, and there's the idea of freedom, and particularly religious freedom. Move through the museum, and you see the church's story told throughout the exhibits. Almost everybody in the church, they just focus on 1846, crossing Iowa, getting to Winter Quarters, that first stretch of the trail. What people don't realize is after 46, in 1847, St. Louis was designated as the trailhead by Brigham Young for that year. And the trail shifted to the river, so they come up through New Orleans, get to St. Louis. There was an emigration agent here, one in New Orleans to shepherd them up the river. And then the trail was the river, and then they'd hit the trailhead in Council's Bluff or Canesville back at that time, or different spots, and it changed every year. So the trail shows the first year the famous Mormon Trail, but Mm. after that, up until 1856, the Mormon Trail, this was St. Louis. In all, 22,000 of the 70,000 early Mormon pioneers came west to Utah through St. Louis. Here's the cameo of Temperance Westwood Moon. Temperance was the Mormon uh, girl that emigrated to St. Louis, arrived in 1849. Uh, when After she died, I got here, her mother and father and newborn sister all died within a week. And she was kind of farmed out with relatives, and she ended up a year later getting a job because her sister, Mercy, worked for Roswell Field, who had a child, Eugene, who wrote Little Boy Blue, and Temperance was the nanny for three years. Roswell Field was Dred Scott's lawyer. Mm-hmm. So as uh, 
you know, she was the nanny. He was, he was working doing that, that very case. Yeah. <gasps> really right. changed history. Right. Moving from a beautiful replica of a handcart, many of which were built in St. Louis, by the way, for those pioneers. And then if you go around this way, it explains the three trails. Well, Lewis and Clark, too. Well, the Oregon. All of the I trails. guess it's the three trails, right? Yeah, just yeah. three here. Yeah. And yeah, there we those go. are the three trails that are... And here we're showing that alternate route. Through the, up through the steamboats. Yeah. yeah. And then we come across a wall of pictures and daguerreotypes. So you see all those images up there. Mm-hmm. So three of those images are, are Mormon immigrants. And then there's a Nauvoo edition of the Book of Mormon under the glass. So they turn the page every so often. So we're on 1st Nephi. Yeah. The things which the Lord hath commanded. Yeah, there you go. So sometimes they'll go in and change the So, well, well, every day, every, they do it every week? See, it's the light levels. We don't want to uh, make anything fade. So sure. you, you sure. could come once a week and read the Book of Mormon. In another area of the museum, the video displays tell the story of the westward expansion and the sounds they heard on the trail, including Come, Come Ye Saints. But it's intertwined. It's mm-hmm. the, the history of all of these groups. I, I bet you're so pleased. I really like the fact that we tried to approach all the stories that we told from multiple perspectives. And the church is so big on family history and a sizable number of the people in the church, if they look at their own family history, if they third, fourth, fifth generation, I'm sure they'll find out that their ancestors came through St. Louis. And St. Louis was an oasis and sanctuary for their family. By June 1857, the epidemic of cholera forced the ports to close. And the St. Louis stake, the 16th in the church and one of the only ones outside of Utah, eventually disbanded when almost all their leaders moved west. But that was not the end of the church's connection to St. Louis. Coming up next, a conversation with a Latter-day Saint family whose roots in the church and St. Louis go back generations, and we hear their joy at the building of a temple when the Saints in St. Louis continues. Back to the Saints in St. Louis with Mary Richards on KSL News Radio. Welcome back to The Saints in St. Louis. I'm Mary Richards. As we've been reporting during this special hour, throughout the 1840s and 50s, St. Louis was a haven and a help for members of the Young Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It was also a key part of the Saints' journey west. President Thomas S. Monson spoke in April 2005 about his story. I recall as a boy hearing of the experiences of my Miller ancestors. When the family arrived in St. Louis, planning to earn enough money to make their way to the Salt Lake Valley, a plague of cholera struck the area. The Miller family was hard hit. In the space of two weeks, mother, father, and two of their sons died. My great-grandmother, Margaret Miller, was 13 years old at the time. Because of all the deaths in the area, there were no caskets available at any price. The older surviving boys dismantled the family's oxen pens in order to make crude caskets for the family members who had passed away. The nine remaining orphaned Miller children and the husband of one of the older daughters left St. Louis in the spring of 1850 with four oxen one wagon, arriving finally in the Salt Lake Valley that same year. 
I owe such a debt of gratitude to these and other noble forebears. And the heritage of families like these is contained here at the Gateway Arch Museum, but also throughout the St. Louis area. Local Latter-day Saint historian Tom Farmer and his colleague Bob Moore explain. Bell Fountain Cemetery here, it was built in 1849. There's several pioneers that are buried there. Up where the graves are marked. So again, their presence is still here, even though they went out west. When the church history conference was here, we went out to the cemetery, and Tom took us around and yeah. showed us the graves. It was, it was really cool. It was great. Not only is this history not well known within the church, it's also not well known in St. Louis. So when we put together our scholars committee, there were several people on it who knew nothing about this story and were and totally became converts right. to <laughs> if not to the church at least to the idea <laughs> that, that was, there was some important things that happened here you know in uh, the 1850s in particular associated with church history President Henry B. Eyring of the church's first presidency has spoken a few times about his great grandfather being baptized in St. Louis In St. Louis one of his co-workers was a Latter-day Saint. From him, he obtained a copy of a pamphlet written by Elder Parley P. Pratt. After two months of careful study and prayer, Heinrich had a dream in which he was told he was to be baptized. A man whose name and priesthood I hold into sacred memory, Elder William Brown, was to perform the ordinance Heinrich was baptized in a pool of rainwater on March 11, 1855, at 7.30 in the morning. BYU church history professor Fred Woods explains what happened after the westward migration. So it's an interesting time, kind of an in-between. You have the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, who now notice the, the Tabernacle Choir on Temple Square, comes in 1893. Decade later, we have the state of Utah has a uh, had a building at the St. Louis World's Fair. President Kimball, uh, Spencer W. Kimball, I should say, that later becomes president of the church, is there during the time of World War One as a missionary. He is the missionary who converted my mother's family. And Linda Oscarson's father's family came to St. Louis in 1918. My maiden name was Lockhead. Lockheads Manila is quite famous. And my grandfather, Angus T. Lockhead Sr., came from Scotland. So uh, my grandfather had a, a sweetheart, Wealthy Lake. And so they raised their family here. And um, really, there were not all that many members of the church, as you can see here from the picture. This was the whole branch, the whole city. BYU church history professor Fred Woods, who co-authored When the Saints Came Marching In, explains how families like the Lockheads and another prominent family led to the new growth of the church in St. Louis. And as we move into the 20th century, we have Latter-day Saints that are going out to various you know, cities, both east and west. And one catalytic family is the Roy Oscarson family. So in the middle of World War II, uh, Roy Oscarson goes out as a general shoe manager. He's proved himself for the, his company in various places. So he goes out in 43. 
he sees that this Maple Avenue chapel is dilapidated, and he thinks we need to do something about this to bring people so they're not in, you know, in, it's not an embarrassment to the church. Utah, D.C., and lo and behold, less than a decade later, when the St. Louis stake is reorganized, the, or the second stake, so it's been a century now, right? Mm. Uh, Roy Oscarson is the stake president, and, and this becomes the 265th stake in the church. But he's very influential. He's connected. He you know, is involved with the Chamber of Commerce and business uh, people in the region really respect Roy Oscarson. He and his family, I think, become like uh, the face of Latter-day Saints at that time. Linda and Dick Oscarson tell the story while sitting at their kitchen table in West St. Louis County. On August 13, 1943, Dick's father, Roy Oscarson, landed in St. Louis with his company. And it was so hot here. That he, and humid in August, get off the train and you think it's the train, but it isn't. And he thought, how can I ever bring my family here in this place? So he went to church on Sunday and got invited home to dinner by a cute little short, friendly Scotsman, my grandpa. He, after that experience, thought, if there are people like this here, then I can bring my family here. So that was the beginning, and then we culminated it when we got married in 1958. <laughs> <laughs> the merging of the two families. Yes. Well, our families had known each other all those years. I mean, we all, because we were all in the same ward, well, branch at the time. The Oscarsons lay pictures on their red checkered tablecloth. This is the first little chapel that you've seen pictures of, Maple Avenue. That was here when we moved here in 1943. That's the one that was purchased by uh, Spencer Kimball when he was his mission on a mission here. I love the windows. Yeah, they're yeah. stained glass. When we came here in 1943, we came with the Maple Avenue. And then, as I remember very well, those few years until the, this lovely building was built, mm-hmm. dedicated by President George Albert Smith, by the way. Oh. Well, presidents don't dedicate too many temp- chapels, do they? Yeah. But this is what I'm getting at. Because we didn't have an evening meeting, we had cottage meetings in people's homes, and this is a typical picture of what sacrament meeting was. <laughs> wow. we, nobody had big homes in those days, and that was about the crowd that would come <coughs> for Sunday evening, and they would have a speaker, and sometimes they did have sacrament. But this, this went on until this building was built. And when they were going to build this building... They were going to build it one smaller, but the church architect came out, and usually they get everything. They want to make everything smaller, you know. But he's, he saw this and on this nice corner location, and he said, "Oh, he said for the first church built building in this big city, we need something that makes a statement mm-hmm. and dedicated." Yeah. So then we felt like we were really in church. The Jameson Chapel, dedicated in 1949, was the finest chapel at that time between Utah and Washington, D.C. Roy Oscarson's company wrote a letter praising the building and the saints in the area. So this is what they said, and you can read it. It's quite wonderful. Your beautiful new church is a credit to our community and a splendid contribution to the enrichment of cultural and spiritual values. That's beautiful. 
What a neat thing for mm -hmm. them to say that. And then soon after this, in Belleville, Illinois, they built one. East St. Louis, they built one, and that was the start of it. So it's been really remarkable from, from this to all of these uh, stakes we have here now. It was a handful of faithful saints who stuck it out like every other city in the eastern United States and around and has seen the church grow. And we were so happy when we became a stake because then we had a bishop even, you know, and we were a ward. And that was, that was an exciting time for us. And we got a stake yeah. patriarch. He lived in Rolla, 90 miles away. Dick's father, Roy Oscarson, was called a stake president in 1958 when the St. Louis stake was organized for a second time. He helped acquire eight to ten new chapels for the church. Later in his life, his family filmed him at each chapel, speaking about the overall growth of the church. I suppose some of what we have done could be called visionary, but basically... Uh, we have seen what was the necessary thing at hand to do, whether it was to build this chapel or to accomplish this particular project, and then to persist until it is accomplished. And then the way opens up for future developments. But uh, dedication to the very task at hand. Uh, one cannot be uh, diverted from his course. And during all of this, the haven and peace that the early saints had felt in St. Louis continued. Through the years, St. Louis, as you know, has been very friendly to the church and has been since. We went through high school. Her sister was a member. My brother was a member. That was about it. N never a problem, really, of, of anybody making fun of you or talking about oh. you or anything. We've been very happy here. That happiness became complete with the building of the St. Louis Temple. When the temple was first announced, I mean, how, what did that mean for your family? We were astonished. <clears throat> Absolutely incredulous. We <clears throat> had never really thought that it would happen in our lifetime. Coming up, we hear stories of miracles from the first temple president in St. Louis. When the Saints in St. Louis continues... Back to The Saints in St. Louis with Mary Richards on KSL News Radio. St. Louis was a haven of peace and welcome for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, even in the early years of the church. That relationship grew through the years, with the church growing in membership. There's been a number of things, but really, the to me, that the capstone is when. You know, St. Louis receives their own temple. Fred Woods co-wrote When the Saints Came Marching In about the history of the church in St. Louis. It's been a marvelous uh, run, but I think the temple really is um, a capstone event. Yeah, For the area, for the church, it was the 50th temple for the church. It yes. For a long time, St. Louisans and church members, Dick and Linda Oscarson, the announcement of a temple was unbelievable. The letter came the week before Christmas. And everybody just was so excited and stayed that way and worked, helped work on committees and everything like they do everywhere. Speakers, bureaus. To, to make it happen. Menlo Smith was instrumental in all of it, from the announcement in December 1990 to the groundbreaking in 1993 to the dedication in 1997. And Smith became the first St. Louis Temple president. They wanted me to find a site for a temple in St. Louis. 
Of course, we had never dreamed of having a temple in St. Louis. But uh, anyhow, went to work on that and eventually identified five possible sites. I got a call from President Hinckley one day asking me if I would pick him up at his granddaughter's house on a certain day at a certain time. He has a granddaughter that lives in St. Louis, has for many years. So, of course, with some arm twisting, I agreed to pick him up, took him around, showed him these various sites, and saved what we considered to be the best one until the very last. And we drove up on top of this promontory that overlooks the uh, one of the busiest interstate highways in the area. And he got out of the car. He looked north. He looked south. He looked east. He looked west. And... I'm sure it was less than two minutes' time. He said, Menlo, this is where the temple should be. You get busy and buy this property. And the same spirit of haven and welcome throughout the history of the church in St. Louis resonated through the building process. President Hinckley could never get over the fact that we had not a stitch of opposition to this temple. At every turn, we had miraculous things happen that made it possible to get that temple situated there. And when we finally had uh, gone through, jumped all the hoops and and crossed all of the hurdles with uh, the city, finally uh, one of the councilmen stood up and said, well, don't you have a picture of this building? You haven't shown us what this is going to look like. Our architect, who was in the meeting, walked over. We had a a tripod set up with an easel. And he went over and he pulled the cover off of that, that easel. And here was the architect's rendering of the temple. And it was, it was breathtaking. And the whole room, the whole room just gave a big sigh of amazement and was quiet for what seemed like five minutes. At that point, the, the councilman that had asked that question slapped his hand down on the, on the table and he said, I am not going to move approval of this project. Well, uh, the whole room was dismayed. And uh, then he, he paused for a minute or two, and then he slapped his hand down on the table again. And he said, I am going to move enthusiastic and unanimous approval of this project. And, of course, that, that brought cheers in the entire room. Their relationship only grew and strengthened with the Missouri Baptist College and with other faiths. 250,000 people attended the Temple Open House. They had to extend it to four weeks and on Sundays. Members of Dick Oscarson's company went with him on a tour and wrote him a letter afterward. I think you'll get a feeling of how the city, he would represent a local large company, St. Louis company, The values and principles of LDS members are not just theories, but are applied in deeds. The guiding focuses of family and fairness, which we have all come to associate with members of your church, have built up a goodwill that you are now seeing reflected as the citizens of Greater St. Louis come forth in droves. What a wonderful note to get. It says, A key underlying reason for the huge number of visitors you're having is the good feeling about the character and contribution of the LDS members in the St. Louis area over many decades. Mm-hmm. How wonderful is that? Yeah, I just brought it because it was typical of, of others that received letters from other company people and so forth, too. Yeah. So. Menlo Smith says the temple was and is a guiding light. It looks beautiful sitting up on that promontory. Very visible. In fact, it's it's the airplane pilots use it as a like a signal to line up for the St. Louis airport. And there's it's hard to find a person in St. Louis uh, 
non-members like who are not aware of what that building is. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ worked alongside their neighbors during periods of flooding. And church history professor Fred Woods says his family was immediately welcomed when they moved to work at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. The key to really um, St. Louis uh, is it's this the friendships that have been developed through interfaith partnership. It's a wonderful thing. People that are looking for the common ground instead of the battleground, wanting to generate light instead of heat. It's truly, I think, a symbol of, of cooperation, of brotherhood. His co-author, Tom Farmer. St. Louis is always, how, how should we say it? It's a town that supports and respects other people's religion. And it's the St. Louis Temple. It's not the Mormon Temple, it's the St. Louis Temple. Well, this is the Gateway Arch. This is everybody's museum. And in this museum, where Tom Farmer and historian Bob Moore strengthened their friendship, you can learn from this history of all peoples. There seems to be a lot of divisiveness in society today. And one way to sort of diffuse that, I think, is to really look at the real history uh, of the past, when you see that, uh, yes, there were divisive times, there were groups that were uh, antagonistic toward one another, but there was just as much cooperation and groups that helped one another and groups that tolerated one another. And I think, you know, this story that we try to tell here is one of tolerance, uh, by and large, um, and understanding, attempts at understanding of other people who might believe differently or live differently, have different customs than, than you do. And a final message from the Oscarsons? I say bloom where you're planted. Because in every area of the church, there has been someone or a few someones who really built the church. They became, our, as, as teenagers, our idols. And uh, I want to be like... Uh, kind of people. And so they played a big part in the growth of the church here. Each of us can be that kind of person Mm -hmm. for the church, for our neighbors, for the world, really. For our youth. I'm Mary Richards. I've been your host this hour. Thank you for listening to The Saints in St. Louis, a history of the welcome and peace that will only continue to a brighter future.